The message of Easter is the most important message in the history of the world. And the message of Easter is the most important message that you will ever hear and believe in your entire life. Now let me say that again because I want that to be absolutely clear and because I believe that to be absolutely true. The message of Easter is the most important message in the history of the world and it is the most important message that you will ever hear and believe in your entire life. When you understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And more specifically, when you understand why the resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary, that changes everything. It changes the way you live, it changes the way you think, the way you speak, the way you interact with your family, the way you do your job. It changes absolutely everything about the way that you live your life. When you truly understand and believe in who Jesus Christ is and all that he has done, that changes everything. In fact, When it's properly understood and believed, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the game changer to end all game changers. Like, think about this. There has been nothing else like the resurrection of Jesus Christ in its time. There has been nothing like it since then, and there will never be anything like it ever again. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was so much of a game changer that all of human history before the resurrection of Christ and all of human history after the resurrection of Christ is measured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like so significant is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that Jesus himself says this about his resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Like, wow. Like, sit down and buckle up, because that is a game changer. Author Lee Strobel sums up the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ like this. He says, Jesus Christ did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. Like, wow, again, right? Like, buckle up, hold on tight, and and just take all of this in because if you truly understand and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will change everything in your life. It would be my absolute honor to tell you today why the resurrection of Jesus Christ needs to matter to you. So if you have a Bible, uh, take it and open with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible uh, tonight and you would like one, um, we have some ushers that are ready to come down the aisles and give you one if you need it. You just need to slip up your hand right where you are. You don't need to do anything else. Just uh, let us know if you want one and somebody will come and give one to you. And uh, you can take that and keep that. That's our gift to you. So we're in Exodus chapter 14 uh, today. And uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And find chapter 14 and that's where we're going to spend our time tonight. So we're in a series in our church called Looking to Jesus, and we're going through the whole Bible from start to finish in one year, and Exodus 14 happens to be where we are right now. And Exodus 14 has one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. It's the story of Moses leading the Israelites to cross the Red Sea. And so maybe you're thinking right now, like, it's Easter weekend, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter weekend. What does Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea have to do with Jesus rising from the dead and the tomb being empty? And that is an outstanding question. We're going to get to the Easter connection by the end of our time together today, but let's begin with this. Just like the crossing of the Red Sea was a game changer for the Israelites, so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a game changer for all of us. 
Because in Exodus 14, just like at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, we meet the God of indisputable power and incomparable love. In Exodus 14, just like at the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, we meet the God of indisputable power and incomparable love. So we're just going to walk through this Bible story in Exodus 14, one verse at a time. And I want to draw your attention in this passage to five words. Okay, And then we'll make some specific application uh, about how this passage applies to us at the end. So five words. The first word is God. So take a look. Exodus 14, starting at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hehiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So notice here, from the very beginning, this entire story begins with God. Like it all begins with God. And you say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, let me give you a little bit of backstory here. The, the story of Exodus 14 actually begins about 400 years before in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis 12, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. And God said to him, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you and your people land to live in, and I will bless you and make your name great. And God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And so for the next 400 years, the people move around. And by the time we get to the start of the book of Exodus, it says that the people had increased greatly in number and in strength, and they filled the land where they were living in Egypt. So it looks now like all of these promises that God made to Abraham all those years ago are actually happening. The only thing was the people were not living in their own land yet. They were slaves in Egypt under an insecure king, and they called this king Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was excessively wicked. So think today of somebody like Saddam Hussein or uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And, and the slavery that Pharaoh put the people under caused them such intense pain and suffering. In fact, it got so bad for them that early in the book of Exodus, the people cried out to God to be rescued. And the Bible says that God heard their groaning and he remembered his promise with Abraham. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so now... The rest of the book of Exodus, and really, in some sense, the rest of the entire Bible is the story of this God who knows the suffering of his people, making himself known as the God who would deliver them. So to do that, God raises up a guy named Moses, and God uses Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let his people go. Pharaoh keeps refusing, and so God sends a series of ten plagues on Pharaoh and the Egyptians as a sign of his curse upon them. So by the time now that we get to Exodus 14, it is really clear that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are like the arch enemies of God and the Israelites. But here's the problem. When you read the end of chapter 13 and the beginning now of chapter 14, those few verses we just read, you realize that God is the one who leads the people to the edge of the Red Sea where their lives are hanging in the balance. Like God is the one who brought them there to this place where their lives are now hanging in the balance. Chapter 13, verse 17 says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. So here's what that means. 
If the Israelites go in one particular direction, then they go through Philistine territory and straight into the promised land. But God already knew before they left that they'd be afraid if they went that way. So instead, God takes them now another way, which leads them straight through the wilderness and brings them to this spot at the foot of the Red Sea where their lives are now hanging in the balance. And they go that way, not because they got God's directions wrong, but because they got God's directions exactly right. And then you get to chapter 14 and verse 2, and you see all these specific cities and places that God talks about, and God gives them precise instructions about exactly where they should go, so there would be absolutely no doubt that they were in the right place, even though none of this seemed to make any sense to them whatsoever. And friends, I don't know what you've brought to church with you this weekend. I don't know what you're dealing with in your life right now, the pain and the suffering, the difficulties, the challenges, whatever it is that you wake up to every single day, and none of it makes any sense to you whatsoever. But what I do know is this, you are not there by mistake. It's so easy for us to look at the circumstances of our life, to look at the loneliness and the fear, even the illness within our lives and think to ourselves, man, it would have been so much easier if I just could have gone that other way and just could have gone all the way around this and not even dealt with this and I'd be in a much better place by now if I could have done that and it would have made a lot more sense to me if I could have gone that way. But here I am, standing in this place that doesn't even make any sense to me and I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Like you need to see as we read this story, that's exactly where Moses and the Israelites are right now. In verse 4, God says to Moses, I'm going to do this work in Pharaoh's heart. And just as a side note here, like, understand that when the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, like when God turns Pharaoh's heart so that he committed evil and wickedness against God, that never means that God takes people who were previously good and makes them bad. It never means that. Okay, like Pharaoh is still very much responsible for the evil and the wickedness that he committed against God. But God here in this circumstance is showing that he has this indisputable power even over this evil king and he can use this evil king to accomplish whatever it is that he desires. So God says now to Moses in verse 4, I'm going to do this work in Pharaoh's heart so that I will get glory over Pharaoh and everyone will know that I am God. So now notice People are standing at the edge of the Red Sea. Their lives are hanging in the balance. These promises that God has made to them centuries before look like they're about to be swallowed up by the waves of the sea and see here that never once does God tell them exactly how he's going to deliver them. Never once does God tell them how he's going to deliver them. He only promises that he will deliver them and he guarantees that in their deliverance he will be glorified. So my question to you is this. Are you willing to take the family situation that you can't seem to figure out no matter how many different ways you've tried? Are you willing to take your singleness that you wish was marriage? Are you willing to take all of the ways that you've been misunderstood or misrepresented or been betrayed by people who thought were your friends? Are you willing to take whatever it is that you're going through in your life right now and say, God, I don't know why I'm here right now and it doesn't make any sense to me and I don't see a way for me to get out of this, but I'm going to trust that you have a purpose for me even if I can't see it. Like, are you willing to pray to God and say, God, please don't let my heart turn hard toward you just because I can't see how you're working in this? Like, I wonder, have you stopped long enough in your life ever to consider that 
Yes, you were born on a certain day, in a certain year, at a certain time, in a certain place, but ultimately, you were created by a God who loves you. And somehow, in ways that we don't always understand, your entire life, from your first breath to your final breath, is orchestrated by God. And the purpose of your life is so that everyone else around you will know that He is God. Like, listen, the greatest purpose of the Red Sea experience and the greatest purpose of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and the greatest purpose of every life that is represented in this room right now is to know that God is God and he will be glorified. That's why the very first thing that I want you to understand from the very beginning is that it all begins with God. It all starts with him. The problem is that what happens next in Exodus 14 is a little bit scary which leads to our second word, which is sin. So at this point, Pharaoh has a change of heart and he wants all these people back that have now left and he's willing to chase them down to get them. So let's pick it up in verse 6. So he made ready, Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So Pharaoh's got this massive army that he's putting all together now and he's chasing after the Israelites. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So Pharaoh now is totally defying God and he's chasing after something that doesn't belong to him. And notice now verse 10, When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, don't forget that by this point in Exodus 14, the people have been living under this evil, sinful rule of Pharaoh for a really long time. And to the point now where the influence of that sin is impacting the way that they think and speak about their circumstances. Like at the first sight of Pharaoh, they turn to Moses and say, didn't we tell you this would be a bad plan? Like, was your only purpose in bringing us here so that we could die a humiliating death out in the wilderness? You know what that is? That's how fear talks. This is what the voice of fear sounds like. Like for all of those years of living under the sinful, evil rule of Pharaoh, the Israelites had felt the overwhelming oppression of sin, and it has the same impact on them that it always has on us. Like for some of us in the room right now, you've been carrying some really heavy burdens for a really long time. And maybe you're at a place in your life right now where it just feels like you are waiting for God to part the waters and make a way for you out of the situation that you're in. And yet at the same time, the longer you wait, the more it feels like all the wrong things are starting to influence the way that you think and the way that you speak about what you're going through. I mean, think about it for a minute. If everything in your life, from your first breath to your final breath, is orchestrated by God and it's meant to bring Him glory, and if you truly believe that, then is the way that you think and speak about what you're going through impacted more by the Savior who is in you or by the sin that is around you? Just recently, I read a story of a night security guard who was known by his coworkers to be the only guy on his shift 
who said that he was a Christian. And he said that one night while he was working, one of his co-workers came into his booth and this guy had really long hair pulled back in a ponytail. He was covered in tattoos and he was pretty open about the fact that he was not a Christian. And he had been addicted to drugs for a really long time, but he found himself searching for something more in his life. So for a while, this guy had been working hard to beat his drug addiction and he had been clean for a little while. And then this one night, he walks into this booth, long ponytail, Uh, covered in tattoos, and he says to this security guard, whom he knows is a Christian, he says to him, what do you think Jesus would say about my drug addiction? What would you say? What would you say if one of your friends or one of your coworkers were to come to you and say, what do you think Jesus would say about my alcohol addiction or my pornography addiction? Or what would Jesus say about my out-of-control spending? What would you say? This guy said that his friend asked him this question and he sat there stunned for a few seconds, but he thought about it and then he said this to his coworker. He said, I think Jesus would say that you're using drugs to try and fill an emptiness in your life, but it's never worked. And that's why you keep going back to it. But he would also want you to know that the emptiness in your life can only be filled by him. And he loves you so much that he will fill that emptiness in your life instantly if you will turn to him and believe in him. This guy said that his coworker looked back at him and thanked him for telling him something that he didn't know because nobody had ever said that to him before. For all those years, for all that time, This guy had no idea that there was someone more satisfying than his addiction. And that's the way sin works on us. If it's left long enough, sin will affect the way that we think and the way that we speak about what we're going through in our life. Like, if you take a close look at your life right now, what is it that you're trying to use to fill the voids within your life? What is it that you're giving influence to, you're giving impact to, you're giving authority to in your life that is speaking some kind of message into your life, whether you sometimes realize it or not? Like it could be that you're here today at church on Easter weekend and you are searching for something more in your life and the good news for you is that there is a permanent way to fill that emptiness that you feel, which leads us now to our third word, which is salvation. Salvation. Now, this is where everything in this story changes. This is where God parts the waters of the Red Sea and the people walk through on dry ground. And I need you to work really hard with me right now to not think about Charlton Heston. All right? Like, remember that classic movie all those years ago and the Ten Commandments and there's Charlton Heston standing by the water, long beard blowing in the wind and raises his hands up and the waters part as best they can with 1950s technology, right? uh, water's part and people walk through on dry ground. Don't think of that, okay? Some of you are like, I wasn't thinking about it until you just said it. So thanks a lot for that. Anyway, look at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them. Into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Like, wow. Like, this is the God of indisputable power and incomparable love. Like indisputable power that he could perform a miracle like this and make this water stand up two walls on either side of them and this God of incomparable love who would make a way for his people to be saved. There's been a lot of debate over many years about the reality of an event like this. Many people have spent a lot of time and energy trying to explain this away into something less miraculous. Some have even suggested that this was just a natural phenomenon that happened uh, to, where there happened to be a high wind and a low tide at the same time that would have created something like a wall of water. But that cannot be because this passage speaks of two walls of water standing up simultaneously and instantly, not to mention that the timing of the whole thing is supernatural by itself, that as soon as Moses stretches out his hands over the sea that the waters part, and then as soon as he does that again a second time, the waters come back down. Others have tried to suggest that this is a really shallow body of water and it would have been no trouble for the Israelites just to walk right through it. In fact, that reminds me a little bit of the little girl whose Sunday school class was learning this very passage. Their Sunday school teacher was teaching this story to them and this little girl pipes up after her, story, or after her teacher had taught the story and, and she says, praise the Lord, like all those Israelites crossing through on dry ground, that's absolutely amazing. And her teacher wasn't nearly as convinced as she was that this was an actual miracle. And so he tried to suggest that this was only a shallow body of water and it wasn't really a miracle for the people to walk through on dry ground. At which point that very same little girl pipes up and she shouts, praise the Lord, all those Egyptians drown in six inches of water. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that story. Like, if that's not true, it should be, right? So, so see this. See this here in this story. These are real people crossing a real sea and trusting in a real God. 
So notice this. The people cross through on dry ground and God shows amazing grace to his people. Like just a little while before, the people are grumbling and complaining that Moses has brought them all the way to this place and they refuse to see that God can make a way for them. But then, even in spite of their turning away, God shows grace to them anyway. He performs this miracle and he takes them from what looked like certain death and he brought them through to new life. Now, when you read that, I don't know what you're thinking at this point right now, but for me, I'm starting to wonder, like, what's the difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians? Because at this particular point in the story, neither one of them are really trusting in God. So why does God deliver the Israelites but drown the Egyptians? I mean, is it because the Israelites are generally a good group of people and the Egyptians aren't? Is it because the Israelites had something more to offer God that the Egyptians don't? No, it's none of that. Like the only thing that saves them is the grace of God. And that grace was most clearly seen in the fact that the Israelites had a mediator. In other words, they had someone who would represent them before God. So that when the Israelites were grumbling and complaining and they didn't have enough faith to see the way forward, Moses stands in their place and shows them the indisputable power and the incomparable love of this amazing God. So that when it's all said and done, the only thing that saves the Israelites and the only thing that saves anybody is the grace of God. So while this story illustrates salvation, it also illustrates our fourth word, which is judgment. So Moses and the people cross the sea on dry ground. Moses stretches out his hand again and the waters come back down and every last single Egyptian dies. In the Old Testament, the crashing waves of the sea often symbolized God's judgment. So notice here that the Red Sea all of a sudden becomes a place of salvation, but also a place of judgment. It's a place of salvation for everyone who turns to God in faith and receives his way of deliverance. But it's also a place of judgment for all who reject God and are swallowed up in a judgment that they will not escape. And it can be really tempting for us to sit here right now and think to ourselves, whoa, wait a minute, that that sounds pretty harsh. Like swallowed up in a judgment that they will never escape? But just think for a minute about the severity of what we're talking about. I've heard others explain it something like this. It's one thing for you to throw a rock at a tree. There's probably no consequences for that. It's another thing for you to throw a rock at a person. There might be some consequences for that. But it's another thing altogether for you to throw a rock at the Queen of England. Like, there will most definitely be consequences for that. And the point is that what matters is not just the sin that you commit. What matters is whom you commit the sin against. Now, consider for a minute what it's like for you and I not to sin against a tree, not to sin against another person, not even to sin against the Queen of England, but to sin against the infinitely holy God of the universe to whom we do not even compare. The God who created us to bring glory to him in everything and yet we have sinned against him at every turn. Like Our sins against an infinitely holy God deserve an infinitely serious consequence. And unless we turn from our sin and turn to him, then we are destined to spend all of eternity separated from God in a real place called hell. 
And yet, what we've seen all the way through this story of the people crossing the Red Sea is that this is the God of indisputable power and incomparable love. And he has done everything to help us see that we can be delivered from this judgment, which leads us then to our final word, number five, life. So the passage ends in verse 29. It says this in verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So now we get to the end of this chapter, and this whole incident is over. Like just a little while before, the people walked into the waters facing the prospect of certain death. And now they've come out on the other side having trusted in God and been delivered. And that, my friends, is the story of Easter. Everything that happens at the Red Sea, for as real as it was for Moses and the Israelites, and even for the Egyptians, is pointing forward to a greater spiritual reality that is realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So notice with me here how the storyline of the Red Sea is actually the storyline for all of human history. How the storyline of the Red Sea is really actually the storyline of every single life represented in this room. So follow along. Again, the first thing to see is that it all begins with God. God has existed forever and there is no one like him in power and glory. He has created every single one of us in his image to know him and to love him. But then sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and we've all been impacted by the presence and the power of sin because all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But from the beginning of time, this God of incomparable love had a plan of salvation where he would send Jesus, his only son, to live the life that you and I could not live and to die the death that you and I should have died for our sins. See, Jesus had to die because sin had to be judged. In other words, since God is perfectly holy, he could not let our sin go unaddressed. And the only one who could save sinners like us is one who has never sinned like we have sinned. Listen, that's why God gave Jesus to die for you. That's how much he loves you. So even as Jesus dies on the cross, all of the judgment of God against our sins is placed upon Christ. So just like the Red Sea, the cross of Jesus Christ becomes a place of judgment, but it also becomes a place of salvation. But the good news of Easter is that Jesus did not stay dead. Three days later, this God of incomparable love and indisputable power raises Jesus from the dead to show that Jesus is the only way that we can be rescued from a judgment that we could not otherwise escape. And now, this Jesus who is alive, this Jesus who is not dead, this Jesus whose tomb is empty, he invites us into life. Jesus calls us to turn away from our sins and to trust in what he has done for us and know that when we do, we will be delivered completely from God's judgment and we will know and experience true life both now and forevermore. See, here's, here's the thing. What Pharaoh and his army failed to realize and what all of the people who nailed Jesus to the cross failed to realize is that God's got the whole thing rigged. I mean, think about it. Because both the Red Sea and the cross were all part of God's perfect plan that would bring deliverance for his people and glory for himself. There was no other way. 
Like when you understand and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this changes every single part of your life. So what do we do with this now? Three responses. And they all come from verses 13 and 14 in this passage. So take a look again at verse 13. This is right after the people have complained to Moses for bringing them all this way out here. And verse 13 says this. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So, three responses. Here's the first. Fear not. Fear not. So, maybe you're standing at the foot of your own Red Sea right now. Maybe for you it's a health challenge or a financial difficulty or a relationship breakdown. It could be that you've known that you need to surrender your life to God for a long time, but you've been afraid to do it because you don't know what's going to happen to you when you do. Like, what if God asks me to change my life in ways that I don't know how to change it yet? Like, what's going to happen to me if I tell God that I'm all in? Then what? Like, why? Think about this. Why is it so important that God orchestrates the events of our lives to bring us to these Red Sea moments? Like, why is it that he brings us to the end of ourselves before we finally see our need to surrender to him? He does this because we need to feel the desperation of standing at the edge of the water and knowing that our only hope is God. That in the presence of God, everything else, everything else in this world, everything else in this life is stripped away and we finally see that he is everything that we need for every challenge that we go through. See, for Moses and the Israelites, don't forget that God was delivering on a promise that was four centuries old. Like He is faithful to his word, whether we understand the timing of it or not. So whether you need to surrender your life for the first time or you need to surrender your circumstance for the 50th time, you have nothing to fear because the God who makes these promises to always be with you will always be faithful to you. And maybe the greatest part of all of this is that you don't have to spend the rest of your life in fear of wondering if you measure up to God's standards because Jesus has met that standard for us. Which leads us right to the next point, stand firm. Stand firm. Like Even when you make the decision to walk by faith, there are still going to be parts of the journey where you don't understand it or it's going to make you afraid in some measure. And it's then... It's then in those moments of uncertainty, wondering if you did the right thing, feeling like you've got these walls of water that are standing up on both sides of you and you're wondering if they're going to crash down upon you. It's then in those moments that you need to stand firm in the truth and in the reality of who God is and what Jesus Christ has done for you. Because the God who called you to this is the God who will lead you through this. So fear not. Stand firm. And then finally this. See your Savior. Notice, one more time, right after Moses says this to the people, verse 15, God looks directly and only at Moses, and he says, why do you cry to me? Like, he's, he's looking at Moses, he's saying that directly to Moses, he's not talking to the Israelites, because the Israelites were the ones who were crying to him, right? It wasn't Moses that was crying, and yet now he looks at Moses and says, why do you cry to me? It's like, why is Moses the only one who's taking the brunt of all of this from God? It's happening because Moses is the mediator between God and the people. In other words, Moses so identified with the people that he carried their guilt as if it were his own. 
Moses is the one, the only one who could lead the people safely through judgment and to their deliverance because Moses was the deliverer that God had raised up to lead the people to salvation. And in a much greater way that Moses ever could, Jesus is our mediator. Jesus has taken all of our guilt and all of our shame upon himself as if it were his own so that he could lead us safely through God's judgment and to our deliverance. Jesus is the only way to be saved because Jesus is the one who has been raised up by God and sent to us to be our deliverer. Listen, you will not be saved from this judgment because you're a good person. You will not be saved from this judgment because you've done a lot of nice things for a bunch of other people. You will not be saved from this judgment because you have something special to offer to God. Listen, the only reason that we are on the winning team is because the Lord has already fought the battle for us. We are saved by his grace. You are saved only if you believe in Jesus Christ. And believing in Jesus involves two things, repentance and faith. It's praying, Jesus, I am a sinner, and today I am turning away from my sin. That's repentance. And Jesus, I am trusting in your death and resurrection to save me from the judgment that I deserve. That's faith. If you will turn to him right now in repentance and faith, and for that moment that you did turn to him in repentance and faith, the Bible says that you will be saved by this God of indisputable power and incomparable love who, when it's all said and done, gets all the glory for the way that he has delivered you. Later in the Old Testament, Isaiah would bridge the gap between what Moses did at the Red Sea and what Jesus would do in his death and resurrection. God says this through Isaiah in Isaiah 43. He says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. So he's talking here specifically about crossing the Red Sea. He says, Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. And then he says this, Remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So God is telling us through Isaiah, don't spend all of your time just looking back to what has already happened and to what has already been done because God now is doing a new thing. And Isaiah says, for as great a deliverance as the Red Sea was, even that pales in comparison to how Jesus delivers all of those who will turn to him and trust in him. Look, you you might be here tonight. And what you need more than you need anything else is for God to do something new for you. And God's promise to every person who will humble themselves before him is that he will come to them and give strength to those who are weary. He will give comfort to those who grieve. He will give peace to those who are searching. And he will give life to those who are dead in their sins. He will come and he will do this new thing if you will turn to him today because he is the God of indisputable power and incomparable love. He is the God who saves.